Kate Thwaites has been the federal member for Jagger Jagger since 2019. Uh, before she came into parliament, she was an ABC uh, TV and radio news reporter, uh, worked at Oxfam, the Victorian Public Service, uh, and worked, uh, importantly, in the office of Jenny Macklin. And now Kate and Jenny have written a splendid little book called Enough is Enough, part of the In, in the National Interest uh, series produced by Monash University. Uh, the book is about women in politics, sexual harassment, parenting and the culture of parliament. But I think it has a lot to say not only about politics but also about how high-pressure modern workplaces can operate better. Uh, Kate is a tremendous asset to uh, our Labor caucus, uh, somebody who is optimistic, thoughtful, uh, sporty, she's a keen uh, yoga, uh, yoga uh, pr practitioner, uh, and somebody who's, uh, who's really added a vast amount to the Labor team. Uh, and I thought it'd be terrific to have a chat with her about Enough is Enough uh, and the insights she's, she's learned since joining Parliament. Uh, Kate, thanks so much for this conversation today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Andrew, and for that warm welcome. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So what surprised you about moving from your previous role where you'd worked as a staffer in Parliament House to being on the floor of Parliament, particularly on the floor during question time? That is such a good question, Andrew, because um, as you say, I wasn't new to Parliament in the sense when I came in as an MP, I had worked in the building before as a staffer, but it is really different walking into that chamber as an MP. Uh, and particularly in the context of the book, talking about it in the context of being a woman MP in that building, the physicality in question time is something that I noticed immediately. Um, as you know, the chamber is actually huge. And when you're not a very big person like me and you are sitting in your uh, seat there for question time, what I found was the wall of sound in that place just hits you. And you feel like, um, A, you're being buffeted by this wall of sound, but also how do you cut through it and contribute to it? And um, it was something that in co-writing the book with Jenny, I discussed with her how she found question time in all her years in Parliament. And I think it made her think about some of the, the experiences that she probably hadn't thought about for a long time because she'd been in Parliament for 23 years. Um, and she actually described it to me, um, a period where she sat between Lindsay Tanner and Mark Latham, who are both very, very large men. And Jenny, like me, is not at all woman. And, you know, she said she felt like a squashed ant. Um, and I just think, again, if you think about an environment where women traditionally have not been members, that wasn't set up for women... Um, what does that say to women if they come into, you know, what's the set piece of every day and feel like a squashed ant or feel like they're being hit with this wall of sound and there's no way to cut through it? It's another one of those things that, that perhaps says um, you're not meant to be here. And in saying that, I want to be really clear that I am not saying that women can't be effective in question time because we have a lot of female MPs who have found um, their own ways to contribute and cut through in question time. And again, one of the things I say in the book is if you do a quick search on Twitter for the member of, for Jagger Jagger, what you will find is a number of mentions of the t number of times the speaker warned Jenny because she had a very loud voice and she did cut through um, the, the cacophony of sound. Um, and of course, Julia Gillard gave her famous misogyny speech in question time. But having said all that, I don't think it's an environment that's set up to say to women, this is a place you belong in. 
Uh, and I do think it's an area that as MPs, we could absolutely look at reforming. Yeah, I remember in their book, Two Futures, Tim Watts and Claire O'Neill took a sound meter into question time and measured the uh, decibel level as uh, uh, being not that far off standing next to a, uh, a jet plane when it's, uh, when it's getting ready to taxi off. Uh, and your, reading your book reminded me too of a conversation I had with uh, Greg Combe where he talked about uh, having walked, worked in a range of pretty uh, macho environments but saying nothing was as macho as question time and, and he talked about the need to find your own voice in question time. Uh, do you feel as though you're starting to, to find yours? Also a very good question. Um, look, for me, I think I am I'm starting to work out where do I want to uh, contribute and how do I best do that. And, um, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me in my first term and also something that we talk about in the book is I actually haven't ended up being in the chamber for all that many question times, Andrew. So we've just come from a question time today and I am participating remotely um, in Parliament again. So I'm actually sitting in my office and dialing into it to um, Parliament via video screen because the pandemic has made it really difficult for, for people like me to get to Canberra. And so, you know, I think that has shown me that there are ways other than the traditional way to contribute to Parliament that um, I am actually able to represent my constituents, do my job um, from a video screen rather than from necessarily needing to, to yell in the chamber. And I think it's made me also really more passionate about the, the possibility and, um, and the need for us to change some of these ways of working in the parliament. I think sometimes we can um, come up against this sense that uh, because these are the parliament is a really important place, it's the heart of our democracy, that its traditions are so sacrosanct that we can't change any of the practices. And, um, you know, being able to make remote parliament work for me and work for representing my constituents has shown me that you can make changes to the way the parliament operates. And I think some of those changes that we need to make will be really important in supporting women to be in parliament, supporting women to feel safe in parliament and supporting women to feel like their voices can be heard in parliament. Yeah, I argued in a book back in 2002, The Prince's New Clothes, Why Do Australians Dislike Their Politicians, that one of the main sources of distrust was a shouty question time. Uh, you made a submission to uh, the inquiry into question time reform uh, along with Peter Murphy. Uh, what did you argue in that submission? That was, yes, um, picking up on that point that you just made there, Andrew, that um, question time is the part of our politics that everyone sees, really. It's what, you know, school kids come in and they see us um, in question time. It's the bit that makes the news. And yet it's the shouty bit that you would not tolerate in any other workplace, that if the kids were behaving like that in the schoolyard, they would be told um, in no uncertain terms that that was not appropriate. Um, so, look, you know, Peter and I as first-term MPs put um, our thinking caps on to think about, well, what is it we want from question time? And actually, we want to be able to hold the government. We're obviously in opposition, so we want to be able to hold the government to account and actually get explanations around what's going on and around, you know, particularly at the moment, some very complex um, challenges our country is facing and public policy questions that we just don't get the answers to in this sort of piece of set macho theatre. So 
we made some recommendations um, around um, the types of questions that, that should be asked, the way that relevance should be used, so one of the standing orders. Um, we recommended that there should be the ability uh, for um, a constituent-specific question to be asked in question time, so as well as uh, broad policy questions, we also get the opportunity for backbench MPs to ask about an, a really local and important issue in their area to try and make sure that we're switching from this environment of who's got the loudest invo a voice and funniest line wins to an environment where actually what we're encouraging is getting some genuine answers. We did also make a recommendation that um, MPs should have to put away their mobile phones. Um, and I have to say that I am as guilty as anyone else in the chamber of um, sitting there during question time using my phones. But again, if I think about the way that people see us in question time, I feel like it's one of those things that, again, makes people think, well, what are they doing in there? Half the time they're shouting at each other, the other time they're looking at Twitter on their phones. Um, you know, how is this relevant to our lives? So I want that um, both for our democracy to seem relevant and for people to feel like they can trust what we're doing in that building. And I want it as a reform that I think will make more women look at the parliament and think that's a place I could see myself operating in and I should think about standing to, to be an MP. Yeah, and maybe more introverts as well. I mean, it seems to me that the ideal uh, participant in question time, according to the current regime, is somebody who's uh, uh, a cross between a, a shouty coach and a stand-up comic, uh, neither of which characteristics are necessarily make you good at doing your job in general. Uh, do you find that, talking to others, that there's a sense that um, question time is a turn-off not just to voters but also to people who might, might make good representatives? Yeah, I think, um, you know, particularly I will, I will say from the perspective of talking to women um, that, you know, uh, most women are not conditioned when we're being brought up to be the loudest voice in the room and we're not conditioned to see everything as a battle. Uh, and to look at an environment where it looks like to be successful, that's the type of person you have to be. I do think that is um, off-putting for a lot of women. And I know when I put my hand up to, to say I'm, I was going to stand for Jagger Jagger, you know, I had a lot of people um, say to me, both people I knew and people who I didn't know who I just met when I was campaigning, and they'd say to me, you seem really nice, why would you do this? Now, what a terrible thing, um, actually, for people to think about politicians. You seem like a good person. Why would you decide that the parliament is the place for you? So, yes. um, yeah, <laughs> we want good people in parliament. Um, so, I, you know, I do think, yeah, it, it shouldn't be about um, it looks like you can shout really well. Can you be there? And uh, you remind us, too, that a lot of the uh, old-fashioned banter in the parliament was actually pretty misogynist. Um, you, uh, you have this uh, splendid quote from uh, Jim Killen uh, in, a, in the context of uh, 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 sex discrimination legislation uh, where he said that uh, Parliament had no place uh, uh, legislating on sexual harassment uh, and saying that it might end the, uh, the prospect of being able to wink at a bus conductress, uh, send flowers to a hostess or help a woman across, across a street. 
Uh, Jim Killen's one of those sort of classic knockabout blokes that uh, that people always talk about in question time. But actually, I thought it was just a great reminder that we don't want the uh, uh, the bad old days of that sort of blokey chumminess, which excluded half the population at least. Exactly. Yes. So uh, in writing the book, um, I did some research around, you know, some really important moments for women in the Australian parliament, because part of what Jenny and I did want to convey is that the parliament is a place for women and it's a place where women have made amazing changes uh, for women across our community. So um, I looked into um, the Sex Discrimination Act, which of course was introduced by Susan Ryan in, in the Hawke government. And you know, so important in changing the lives of women across our country. And that's where this particular quote comes from. And you're right, it's so uh, excluding. It, it, it presumes that the norm is, here's a bunch of blokes talking about what the norm is, and the norm is that we get to wink at some bus conductresses. And, you know, wouldn't it be a bit silly if you couldn't do that? And who would think that that was harmful? And I think that in of itself shows why it's so important that there are now more women in our parliament because I'm not saying that people wouldn't make that comment in our current parliament. I don't think I can safely say that, but I can certainly say that if they did, they'd be pulled up on it really quickly. Uh, and, you know, part of what we talk about in the, the book is the difference that having more and more women in the parliament has made to the environment. And Obviously, that's not something I could talk about from personal experience, but I, I drew on Jenny's experience there. I talked to people like Tanya Plibersek, who have both been in the parliament for a long time and talked about moving the, from this environment where the number of women was very small to where, you know, we're getting closer to half of the parliament being women. And as Tanya rightly says, it's not the job of the women in the parliament to police men's behaviour, but having more women around does change behaviour and it has changed behaviour. And I think, you know, it has, my observation is, is it's probably changed the way that certainly on, on the labour side of politics, I think the men around those women um, act. And the example I give in the book is the fact that uh, in our budget reply last year, Anthony Albanese made the centre of Labor's budget reply affordable childcare. Now, I think that's the sort of big uh, centrepiece policy that you don't actually get as your centrepiece policy unless you are used to listening to, to women in the room. And I think that demonstrates some of those changes that have happened in our parliament. Yeah, you remind us that uh, right now, if you look at the House of Reps, uh, women are 47% of Labor members, but 23% of coalition members. And it's not something that might necessarily come through to the typical person who watches Question Time because uh, on the coalition side, they tend to seat many of the women behind the ministers. Uh, but it, it really is striking when you're in there and you look at the whole, the whole room. Um, the Labor side, for a start, because blokes tend to wear dark suits, the Labor side is a whole lot more colourful. Uh, it just feels a whole lot more diverse. Uh, it feels like it looks a little bit more like Australia than the coalition side, which which really, you know, it's, it's gender. Gender mix is what the parliament as a whole was 30 years ago. Yes. And going back to that point I was making, I think every woman or most women have had that experience of being in the room of and saying something, being in the room as one of a few or the only woman in the room and saying something and having it just either fall into silence 
or waiting for 45 minutes until some bloke in the meeting repeats it and everyone goes, oh, that's a great idea. Thanks, bloke X. Um, That doesn't happen on the labour side of politics. But when I listen to the accounts of women like Julia Banks and and other women um, from the liberal side, it it does seem like they are still uh, in that position where because there are so few of them in the room, it is much harder um, to have your voice heard. And I know for me, um, you know, as a first-term Labor woman MP, knowing that you go into a room with all these strong women around you, with experienced women like Tanya and Penny and Christina and a whole host of women there, um, it does make a difference in how you feel you can operate and how you know you will be heard. And I think um, we talk about in the book about our quotas and how important they have been and continue to be for the Labor side of politics in getting women into Parliament. And Jenny in particular was very strong on how, you know, we can't um, let that slip on the Labor side. Uh, You know, I think the quote she gave me was something along the lines of, you know, there's always some great bloke who absolutely has to be in parliament and so you know there's a reason why we shouldn't meet the quota on this particular case because this bloke's really special um and it it is a really good reminder that actually um that fight is not one that you just say right that's done um we still need to make sure that as a labor party we live up to that that we get women into safe seats and um so that they can stay in the parliament. Um, And it's certainly something that, you know, I understand the other side has a lot of ideological um, objections to it, but we've shown on our side that they work to get more women into politics. Absolutely. And I remember that uh, in 1994, when we uh, moved towards getting quotas, there was all that grumbling about what it would do to the quality of of Labor representatives. Uh, And then the rules come into place and you get... Julia Gillard, Nicola Roxon, Tanya, Tanya Plibersek, Jenny Macklin, uh, this wave of, of extraordinary women are, uh, are coming, to, coming to Parliament and uh, the place is so much better for it. Now, you talk too about the oddity of uh, uh, the way in which Australia does its federal parliament where we've essentially got a, a FIFO workplace, a fly-in, fly-out workplace, which is you know, pretty different from Britain where, uh, when, where people live often in London and then travel back to their constituencies to campaign on the weekend. And that's something that happens also in, uh, in Washington, D.C., for example. How have you found that kind of fly-in, fly-out workplace changes the, the culture of politics? I think, uh, I don't love the phrase, the Canberra bubble, but I think what that fly-in, fly-out culture does to an extent means that when we are in Parliament House, uh, politics is all-consuming and the environment of the building is all-consuming. And, um, you know, for me, I give the example that when I leave my office um, here in Heidelberg and go home, well, my partner hands our baby to me and says, change the nappy, here's all the things he's done today, I'm really tired, I'm out. Um, When I leave Parliament House in Canberra at the end of the day, I go out to dinner with a colleague and we talk about what happened for the day. And you get caught up in this environment where the only thing that seems um, important is politics and what's happened in the building during the day. And I think that changes power dynamics. So, you know, talking about issues of women's safety in the house and talking about how women staffers have been treated in the house. 
I think some of those power dynamics around how uh, men and men's behaviour uh, has been um, not what it should have been, where there's been um, you know, a sense of, I think, entitlement and impunity in how men in the building have acted. I think a lot of that stems from being in this slightly unreal environment where you are away from family, friends and other connections that pull you out of that immediate uh, really intense environment of the parliament. And, you know, the other way that I think um, that affects women being in parliament, and I touched on this before, um, was that uh, if you're a woman, it tends to be that you are uh, doing the majority of caregiving in a household. And so for someone like me with very small children, I've got a, a three and a half year old and an eight month old, uh, leaving your family for half the year is a pretty big deal and it involves making some pretty elaborate arrangements around caregiving. Um, and again, if I look at women thinking about, well, is federal parliament a place for me? For so many women, uh, that is a really high barrier and one that I can see being really off-putting for a lot of women. And it's where things like virtual parliament, being able to participate remotely are actually really important, I think, in making parliament seem like a place that uh, if there are times in your life where you're pregnant, you're caregiving, you can't get away for those two weeks, you could still represent um, your community in the parliament remotely. So uh, one of the things I'm arguing for is that this uh, remote parliament that we've put in place during the pandemic for, for travel restrictions around COVID should be extended to those times in people's lives where it is really difficult for them to physically be in Canberra and and I think again in, in terms of how that looks to our constituents you know having done remote parliament all last year um, during, well for half of last year during the pandemic I know when I've spoken to people in my community about it they just don't see it as that the same big deal that those of us who are actually MPs in the building do they sort of when I say oh yes you know we, we've got virtual parliament up and running and I'm participating via video they're like well, of course, we're all working that way. Why wouldn't you be working that way? So I think, um, you know, I think there's this bit where we can sort of get caught up a little bit in the importance of the building and us being there and, and the general community rightly um, have adapted in their own workplaces and just wonder why we haven't adapted as well. Yeah, they're such interesting observations. I mean, I've been struck by how COVID has made some of the, what you've talked about better and worse. Uh, during last year, it was striking to talk to a number of uh, government ministers who had moved their whole family to Canberra and said that they were just really enjoying a more normal life because Canberra wasn't in lockdown and, and their jurisdictions were, particularly Melbournians. And then this year, what's happened is sort of the reverse, where people aren't able to, to leave Canberra for the, the weekends in between sittings uh, and so are finding themselves locked down here. And, and some of them just talk about the loneliness because they'll be from jurisdictions where the health requirements in the ACT require that they can't go out to dinner. They have to go straight home to their apartment on their own. And so they've found it really lonely in terms of missing family and colleagues as well. So it's sort of cut both ways, I guess. Uh, one of the other issues you, you talk about in, in the book, and, and you uh, you begin by uh, by speaking about uh, Brittany Higgins' extraordinary speech outside Parliament uh, just back in March of this year, uh, and about the need to to better deal with harassment claims. Uh, we're speaking on a day where uh, Andrew Cuomo has just stepped down as Governor of New York after uh, eleven women accused him of sexual harassment. Uh, 
How did uh, watching the Cuomo uh, case unfold make you feel? What did, what, what did you think about that? My biggest takeout from watching that case is I felt an immense sense of relief when President Biden uh, said that Andrew Cuomo should go. Because I think too often what we see in politics is that while um, to a degree we have these fine words around harassment's not accepted, uh, this sort of behaviour isn't tolerated, when it comes to there actually being consequences, um, people in power, so people like presidents and prime ministers, back off from there being any consequences from that behaviour. So I actually felt an immense sense of relief that the president, a person in an immense um, position of power was prepared to follow through and call out that behaviour and say that there should be consequences for that, even though this person um, is on the same side of politics as him. And, um, you know, in the book, really the heart of what Jenny and I got to as uh, one of the big issues in our politics in, in, in Canberra and why we think there has been so much uh, poor behaviour and um, harassment and allegations of, um, you know, sexual assault, which are just terrible. So, you know, what, what Brittany Higgins um, has alleged happened to her should not happen in any workplace and it should not happen in our parliament. But I think uh, part of what's led to that is this sense that uh, there are no, no serious consequences um, for actions when men behave like that, that uh, in politics the numbers rule all uh, and the need to preserve um, numbers on the floor, numbers in the party room has meant that uh, there haven't been the consequences that there should be. Uh, when people have behaved badly. And uh, one of the things Jenny and I also did was um, take some time to research what's been happening in other parliaments around the world. And as you just raised with Andrew Cuomo, we are not the only um, place in the Western world, of course, who um, where the parliament and where um, lawmakers are trying to address these kind of issues. And um, we looked to the British parliament where we take a lot of our uh, traditions from and they uh, have recently put in place a system where when allegations of harassment or bullying or um, these types of behaviours are raised, uh, there is now an independent panel, entirely independent of MPs, uh, made up of experts in these areas that deals with um, handling the complaint uh, and that also decides what the consequences for that complaint should be. And the consequences that it recommends can be as serious as saying that an MP should have to leave the parliament. Now, that recommendation still has to be backed up by a vote on the floor of parliament because democracy is important. But um, I think putting in place the fact that there are such serious consequences um, for this type of behaviour uh, is something that really we are lacking in Australia at the moment. And it's something that I'm very much hoping uh, will be along the lines of what Kate Jenkins looks at in the review she's currently doing for the Australian Parliament. Yeah, I gave evidence to uh, Kate Jenkins and certainly was encouraging her to adopt uh, uh, that independent UK body as, as well as to have more reporting of uh, harassment statistics on both sides because I think if you broke it down by party then there would be a, a healthy competition between the parties to, uh, to do better on, the, on these metrics. Mm, but I'm that's an interesting idea, to... I hadn't thought of that. 
I'm interested too in um, uh, whether you've got any thoughts on uh, the Al Franken affair. Al Franken famously resigned as Minnesota Democratic Senator in 2017 over sexual harassment allegations. And there was a fascinating piece in The New Yorker in 2019 which said that um, seven of his um, uh, former Senate colleagues now said they regretted calling on him to resign uh, and it went through the allegations against him, uh, put them in a, in, a, in a broader context, talked about Franken's own regrets about, uh, about resigning after the scandal broke. Uh, I don't know whether you've got thoughts on that particular case or in general about what that says about the importance of, of having an established process to follow uh, and the value that that can, uh, can bring. I think the, the latter, Andrew, that um, you're entirely right, that, um, you know, what we lack in the Australian Parliament at the moment is an established independent process whereby complaints can be dealt with in a way that um, no matter where they end up, uh, gives people the sense that, uh, and particularly gives complainants the sense that they have been heard um, that their complaint has been dealt with in an independent way, free of politics. And, I, and, you know, I think that is important from all sides and it's important for members of the public when they look to what's happening in our parliament as well. And while we lack that, you know, in our parliament, we just lack some of the basic workplace structures, I think, that most modern professional workplaces have. So as you would know, um, you and I are both employers, but... Uh, we operate in a really different employment environment that we, than we would if we were in, uh, say, a accounting firm or if we were in the public service or any other sort of large professional environment. We don't really have yes. the same HR structures. We don't have the same requirements on us. And um, I think both that lack for us as em employers um, and also the lack of an independent um, system that people can have these complaints dealt with does mean that, you know, there probably will be times when people think, well, was that the right outcome? And, and we can't say, well, it's been through this robust independent process and that's the outcome we ended up with. So that is a real, real gap that we have structurally in our parliament. And, you know, I think, again, from, from my point of view as being a new MP and, and being um, an employer, I both feel... Um, a big responsibility to women like Brittany Higgins, who are staffers in our um, building and feeling like they absolutely should not be working in a workplace where they are not safe and where there are no processes in place for them to take these types of complaints and know that they will be dealt with properly. But I also feel um, uh, sometimes uh, personally as an employer that I'd love to have more support around what does it look like to be a best practice employer in this space? What should I be doing individually with my staff? And as you know, this is something that on the labour side of politics, we've actually been doing the work on uh, over the past year or so to make sure that we have um, the code of conduct, we have training um, about what that looks like. But I do think it's something that across the board, for all of us as MPs, we absolutely um, should have that support to help us do our jobs properly. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's a strange workplace, which you know, in some ways, is very modern, and in other ways, is uh, sort of uh, a bit stuck in the uh, in the last century. 
Uh, one of the things you talk about too in uh, Enough is Enough is uh, uh, having kids while you're in Parliament. Uh, uh, you've uh, you've uh, been one of, uh, well, you write in the book, you talk about the six Labor women since 2019 who've had children, but uh, since you wrote the book, there's been seven. Uh, there's uh, Claire O'Neill's just, uh, just given birth as well. Um, what is it that you've learned about jug- that, that uh, juggle of, uh, of parenting and being a professional in, in a job in which really there's, there's no such thing as, as handing over to someone else? Yes. Yes. So um, firstly, big congratulations to Claire. Wonderful that she has joined um, the number of us who have had children while in office. Um, so as any parent would know, there is no easy juggle uh, uh, when you've had small children. Um, and as you say, um, being in Parliament, you can't actually hand the work off to someone else. So um, when my son Gilbert was born in December last year, I took a few months off going to Parliament. I took leave of the Parliament, but um, I needed to make sure that I was continuing to work on behalf of my constituents. So that is really different to um, you know my experience when I had my daughter Harriet three and a half years ago and I took um, you know, maternity leave from my job and put my out of office on and was like, see you all in, you know, nine months once I figured, figured this baby thing out. Um, so it is definitely a juggle. In some ways, um, I would say there are privileges around being an MP and doing that. So I could and I, I have um, brought Gilbert, my son, to Parliament with me. He can come into the office with me. Uh, what we explore, part of what we explore in the book is how some of the standing orders in the chamber have changed to make it much easier for um, women who need to bring their children to Parliament. You now, if you are caregiving, you can tell the whip, I'm caregiving, I can't get in there in that mad four minutes when you have to dash in and not miss the doors closing to vote. And that's just accepted. Uh, whereas in the past, um, you know, that wasn't a reason why you could skip a vote. Um, but there is no doubt that that um, need to be in Canberra for half the year is absolutely a big juggle and the need to be on for the rest of the time um, when you're at home is also a really big juggle. It does demand, I think, um, a very supportive partner in your life um, and you do have to have some really honest conversations about what that looks like in terms of parenting and sharing the load. And uh, this probably takes me to something else that Jenny and I talk about in the book, which is... um, how we set up those sort of roles in our community for men and women around caregiving. And um, I am right in the middle of this, as I, as I keep saying. Um, it, so it feels very, um, very real, but thinking about how women are, are positioned in our parliament, you know, also you have to think about how women are positioned right across our community. And what does it look like? What do we show um, young girls and boys when they're growing up about where women work and where men work. And I think a lot of um, what happens in the early years here in Australia is that we set up some um, pretty binary gender roles really early on in a child's life. Uh, And it can be hard for people to break out of those. So, um, you know, women are the primary caregiving, overwhelmingly the primary caregiver in the early years of a child's life. And um, that means that they tend to be the primary caregiver going forward. And Australia's paid parental leave scheme, government paid parental leave scheme was introduced by Jenny 10 years ago. And it was a massive social reform at the time. And it's meant that a lot of women who in the past didn't have access to paid leave, particularly women in 
um, low paid or um, more casual work now have access to paid leave for the first time. But what that scheme hasn't done is encouraged men to take time off in those early years of a child's life. And so what we're doing is setting up this environment where a woman becomes the expert caregiver. And I, I talk about this in my own context where um, when I did take maternity leave with my first daughter, I took about nine months off and then I handed over to, to my partner and he took about three months off after that time. And very early on uh, in his time looking after Harriet, um, there was a moment where he decided to take her from Melbourne where we live to Newcastle to visit his parents. And, um, you know, so he was going to take her on the plane by himself. And I remember thinking as he was going out the door to catch a plane, oh, should I check what he's packed in the bag? And I thought, no, no, I won't do it. He's got it. Um, <laughs> So he got on the plane and um, he had packed just enough for the you know hour and a half flight or whatever it is to Newcastle. But of course, the flight was delayed. They ended up in turbulence and circling, circling Newcastle for, for sort of an hour and a half. So what was meant to be quite a you know short trip ended up being about five hours. And for much of the trip, um, he was holding a wet, hungry, screaming baby on his lap because he had run out of bottles and run out of nappies, having packed just enough um, for the length of time that he thought he was getting. And he hates me telling that story all the time, but I tell it all the time because what it has meant is that he learned at that point how important packing the bag was. Uh, and he has never unlearned that lesson. And it means now that when we go out, um, I don't think about what's in the bag and has he packed it properly. I know he's got that because he knows what the consequences are of not having done that. And I think the dynamic at the moment of how we tend to set up caregiving roles too often means that women uh, fall into the role where they are the primary caregiver, they are the person who knows how to do it all. Uh, and that has implications, obviously, for uh, their career, their earnings, their capacity to work. It has implications for, for men and, and their ability to spend some really important quality time with their children. And I think it has implications for what children see as gender roles in our community. And I do want um, my children to be able to see uh, both their mum and their dad um, caring for them, cleaning, cooking, doing all those things that very small humans need. You know, it, it is hard, time-consuming work. And um, I think it's time that our pay parental leave scheme was updated to reflect that as well, to really support uh, not just women as primary caregivers taking time out, but supporting men uh, to also take significant time out in the early years with their children. And um, we see from evidence overseas in countries where they've moved in that direction, that adding a sort of use it or lose it um, element to a paid parental leave scheme where uh, if a man um, does take time, it's an extra period of time on the original scheme, um, seems to be quite effective in promoting that uptake and changing that dynamic around who um, making it a much more even share of, of caregiving. Yeah, it's amazing how the uh, the evidence around those uh, those daddy months and uh, and whether or not that's uh, that greater equity in the Scandinavian countries can uh, can make a real difference. Um, Kate, we've spoken about a lot that needs to change in politics, but. I know neither of us would want to leave listeners with the sense that it's just not worth it. So uh, let's conclude. Just just wrap up for me what you love about being a member a member of parliament. For anyone who's listening who who thinks that this might be something that they would like to do in the future. Yes, thank you for asking that, Andrew, because it is such an important point and it's something that 
both Jenny and I wanted to be very clear about in the book that uh, there is no greater privilege than being elected to the Australian Parliament. Uh, I think every day what a privilege it is to do my job. And um, I get to go into my community, talk to people about their lives, find out about what's going on, where they need extra support, what needs to change. And I get to gather all that up take it to Canberra and put that into, you know, really important discussions, both on the floor of the House, within the Labor Party about, right, how do we want to shape this country? How do we take that forward? And, you know, I talk in the book about one of the reasons why I decided to stand for Parliament was because I had the privilege of working for Jenny Macklin when she was a very senior minister in the Gillard government. So very strong senior women um, making some major reforms to this country. And I saw Jenny introduce the paid parental leave scheme. I saw her introduce the NDIS. You know, there is nowhere else um, than the floor of the House of Representatives and you can introduce these major changes. So um, it is absolutely a privilege. Um, you know, I get to meet fascinating people. I get to uh, do research for books and write books and then talk to people about the ideas about what I think should change. Uh, and I absolutely want to say, particularly to women out there, um, the parliament is a place for you. It is a place where you can make amazing changes uh, and absolutely you should consider it. The book is Enough is Enough. It's a, uh, a mere $20 at your favourite bookstore. Kate Thwaites is the member for Jagger Jagger. And Kate, thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights today. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew.